Amen. Please can we turn then to Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is the section that we're going to look at today. If you're here for the first time or have just popped in after a a time of absence, I'll just say we're going through this part of the Bible which contains the songs of the servant. And uh, we're going to have a time of worship. And our worship for the next uh, three quarters of an hour or so will be doing God the honor of listening attentively to what he's saying. People sometimes puzzle over, what is God saying? Well, actually, the answer, in many ways, is very simple. He's written it all down. We can just look at it and listen and hear the voice of God together. And God says that his word is life-giving and life-changing. And we sort of put that to the test this morning. Let's listen and see whether God does change our lives and give life to those who don't yet have it. So that's what we're going to do. We've already prayed. I need, if, you, if I may, just to wind back a little bit and say what we've already seen in these servant songs. They're ancient prophecies. They tell us about a servant who is going to come. So this was written, I'm just guessing, sort of 700 BC. Uh, it's definitely an ancient text. Um, you can... If you follow through how texts are transmitted, this has all the authentic signs of an ancient text. It tells us about a very crucial person, a destiny-changing servant. And I need to put it into a context. It's in a historical context. It's not a European text. It's a Middle Eastern text. It's not sent to the Anglo-Saxon races as sent to a particular ethnic group, ancient Israel, and God called ancient Israel to be his people. You might say, well, why did he pick on them? No idea. God never told anybody. He said, I've just decided to pick on you and to call you to be a light to the nations. If I put on the screen there the word Gentiles, meaning the nations of people who are not Jews. And you might say, why did God work this way? And I have no idea why. He just did. And you take it or leave it. Israel, in fact, failed to be a light to the nations. She was faithless, thankless, and idolatrous, and left off worshipping the Lord and worshipped idols. And lest you should think, Uh, The implication of that is that one nation is worse than any other. I simply, the way this is put in the Bible is it's just a test case. If God had picked the Welsh, for example, they would have been no better. Um, Or the English or whatever race you happen to think of. It's just that this is a test case to show the human condition. Given privilege, our natural tendency is to be faithless, thankless and idolatrous. And what became of Israel was, as a historical fact, uh, she was taken from her homeland in exile to Babylon and put at a distance from God. Instead of being a free nation, she was imprisoned, and instead of being in the light of God, she was in darkness. The people sat in darkness. And the Bible is the story how God said, well, these people 
in their fickleness, in their ingratitude, have not fulfilled what I offered and promised them, but God says, I'm not going to leave it at that. Not going to leave it at that. I'm not going to let these people's stupidity stop me blessing not only them, but the whole world. And God determines that he will raise up uh, Israel and, you might remember this from the other week, that's too trivial. I want to bless all nations. I want there to be, in a thousand years' time, people reading this text, not only in a re-established homeland, but across the world. I want people in Brighton to be reading this text and believing it applies to them. And of course, that's exactly what God's done, to bring light to the Gentiles too. So this is a text for us. It is the text which tells us how we can be close to God, how we can live in liberty, how we can have light. And it's all about the servant, and it says to us, the key to these things for us to now is this servant. We need him and what he has done. And of course, the him is Jesus. So we have, I've did a little, did a little graphic there of the servant, and along with him, the people, that, the, the blob represents the group of people that he is involved with. And we find that that idea of the servant and his people keeps on cropping up over and over again. So if I may borrow your patience just for a little bit more, we've seen uh, these servant songs, whoops, uh, verse 42, no, chapter 42, behold my servant, that was the one which said, he's so gentle he won't break a bruised reed. The second servant song in Isaiah 49, that was the one where it said, it's too trivial a thing for you to restore the tribes of Jacob. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles. And the third one is the one where it says, the servant says, my ear you've opened every day I listened as you taught me. I offered my back to those who beat me. It's the sovereign Lord who helps me, who will accuse me. And... Those were the ones that we looked at before. And in each case, you have this thought that he's an individual, yet what he does affects a group of people. Uh, And this is the the text that we're going to look at today. So just one more thing before we dive into the text. Who is going to be listening this morning? So I thought, suppose John Humphreys, the Radio 4 presenter, was sitting here this morning. He would probably have walked out by now, but uh, he's not particularly, I don't think he's particularly sympathetic to Christianity. He would say he was an outsider. He'd probably feel sitting here he was an outsider. And I I thought, John Humphreys, what would I say to you this morning? And then I thought, maybe Joan Indigo is here. She's a churchgoer. She comes occasionally, but she's not quite sure, really, why all the other Christians get so enthusiastic, because this seems to pass her by somehow. And then Jane Jacket has happened to pop in this morning. You see why I've given them these names, because they become parts of the alphabet. H-I-J, 
I thought I was really clever when I did it, and I thought, well, I don't know why I bothered, really. But Jane Jacket has come along, and she, she's just wandered in out of curiosity to, to say, you know, what is this Christianity thing? You know, a little bit surprised that we haven't got an altar and stained glass, because she thought all churches were like that. But she's sitting, and she's, you know, what, are, what, 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 does, what does go on in Christianity? And then Jim Coggins, who has come along this morning, you see I got stuck on the K, I thought it was G, and then I realized, no, that's not the way the alphabet goes. Um, and Jim Coggins has come along this morning, and he's a believer, and he's struggling a bit. And to be honest, he wasn't quite sure whether he'd come this morning, because he's got various problems. Maybe his family is disappointing him. Um, maybe when he got married, everything seemed to be wonderful and rosy, and he's found that married life is not as easy as they gave him to understand, maybe he's pressured by time, maybe he's suffering long-term pain, maybe he's got financial difficulties. What would I say from this text to those people? And to John Humphreys, I would say at this point, please listen, because God is claiming your attention in this ancient prophecy. He's saying, there's something to be seen here. And to Joan Indigo, I would say, if you haven't quite got the point of Christianity, if you look into these verses, it's definitely there. Because this is at the heart of things. This isn't a random text. This is really at the heart of things. And to Jane Jacket, the inquirer, I would say, if you're looking for answers, you'll find them here. If you look carefully enough, they're in this text. And to Jim Coggins, I would say, follow through Isaiah 53, and it will bring you to Isaiah 54, which says, sing and rejoice. You've got really good reasons to not feel you're on the back foot all the time, but there's something here to say, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I can go back home saying, whatever life throws at me, I want to be glad I'm a Christian. So, that was a lot of introduction, wasn't it? We're looking at uh, poetry. Uh, if you want to, if you have the text there, you can divide it up. Uh, I've, I like putting little pencil lines in my Bible. So, 13 to 15 is one stanza, one block. And then 53, one to three is another block, another stanza. Then 4 to verse 6 is a third stanza. Verse 7 to 9 is a fourth. And then 10 to, 10 to the end, 10 to 12, is uh, another block. The first one seems to summarize everything. The next one seems to give us facts. The next one gives us interpretation. The following one gives us facts. And the one after that mostly gives us interpretation. And there are a number of intertwining ideas here, which we shall see. Because we'll go through it in, in a moment, verse by verse. But just looking at the whole thing here, it's a lot about suffering, isn't it? Do you see that? Would you agree with that? This poem, this text, is a lot about suffering. It says in verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. It's talking about somebody who was crushed. That's not a very pleasant theme to talk about, is it? But there's something actually real 
in this text. It's saying, you know, I'm not just talking about fluffy things here. I want to be taken seriously. This is about somebody who really suffered. It's about somebody who was misunderstood and rejected. In verse 3 it says, we esteemed him not. So this is somebody about whom people have made colossal mistakes. They've looked at him and completely misunderstood what he was about. Another feature of this text is the purposefulness of God in this person who suffers, who's so deeply misunderstood. God has a purpose. And if I may, can I contrast this? Did any of you ever see that TV program, Lost? Okay, just you and me, Adam, on this. Okay, lost. Let me just explain. It was a a long-running series about bizarre events, wasn't it? People landed on an island and bizarre things happened. And the longer it went on, you thought, I'm really looking forward to the ending because it'll all, uh, there'll be a purpose behind it all and it'll all become clear. And the longer the series went on, you thought, the writers are going to have real problems resolving all this. And of course, what they did was they just ended the series without resolving any of it. It was just left as a complete set of complete meaningless puzzles. And the Bible insists that the world is not like that. That although it may seem to have meaningless puzzles, God has a purpose in it. And in this particular thing of the servant, it says it was the Lord's will to do such and such. God has a purpose in it. And there's a constant appeal to this idea of exchange, which I was talking about with the children. So dad pays, but the children consume the Kentucky Fried Chicken. So there's a sort of exchange. Um, So you get it in verse four. He carried our sorrows. So ours are the sorrows, but he picked them up and carried them. You get this exchange going on all the way through. And you also get this amazingly grand result, because it all looks so bleak, but it ends up so triumphant. Verse 12, for example, therefore I will give him a portion with the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. So it's not a tragedy, but it's that they all lived happily ever after, or in a substantial way, it all came right in the end in a most remarkable way. Let's look, at the, let's look at the verses one by one. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Three times we're told. This first stanza sort of summarizes everything and it looks at the end, doesn't it? My servant will succeed through wisdom He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Interesting that Jesus was those three things. Raised from the dead, uh, ascended into heaven, exalted at the right hand of God. Verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. He suffers terribly. Uh, So that people look at him and they're absolutely appalled. 
can this really be, well, it's almost saying, can this really be a human being? Uh, so disfigured, so badly treated. And, the, and then it goes on to take us to the grand result. So he will sprinkle many nations. And the scholars have spilt a lot of ink over that word to sprinkle. You might even have a translation which says startle. And I think there's a number of things in this that, where the translation is um, certainly beyond my, my understanding. The word is sprinkle, and it's usually used of what happens in a sacrificial context in ancient Israel. So to cleanse, uh, for, for example, water would be sprinkled, or blood would be sprinkled. And the effect of that is to make people who were unclean clean. And the, uh, the poem says, this servant will sprinkle many nations. He'll make clean many nations. And it refers to kings, this element of surprise. They'll shut their mouths because of him, because what they were not told they will see, what they have not heard they will understand. The sense that this comes to them as a complete surprise. Nobody had been preparing the kings for this over the, over the years. Someone comes and tells them and they're completely taken by surprise. And the Apostle Paul would have said, well, I'm glad that verse is in the Bible because that's exactly what I do, the Apostle Paul would have said. Because I go to kings, if I can get the opportunity, I'll go to anybody if I get the opportunity, and tell them what God has done because otherwise they wouldn't know. And it comes to them as a complete surprise. And it's shockingly revealed what they have not heard, they will understand. Let's go to the second stanza. It begins with the question, who gets it? Who gets the idea? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So who gets it? Maybe no one. Or maybe no one you would have predicted. But it just raises it as a question. It is not obvious. Who, who understands it? And it talks about the servant in his fragility. So we get the, a, a vegetable metaphor here. He grew up before him, meaning before his face, before God's face. Here is the servant growing up like a, a weed out of the cracks in the pavement, dry ground. Uh, the, the weed grows up. He grows up like a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground. Very surprising that this fragile plant should grow up. And he's unimpressive in many ways. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So he's not a Hollywood hunk uh, or whatever you might like to think. He, he, he doesn't attract through his glamour or his being photogenic or eye-catching. I know that the, uh, the pictures that people paint of Jesus nowadays, is, it's fascinating they're always recognizable as Jesus, and it's also fascinating there's no basis for them whatsoever. Why, why, how on earth did, would people 
even claim to know what Jesus looked like. But we all are told that in his physical appearance, there was nothing outstanding. There was nothing that made people say, wow, he's rather special. You know, some, some people do have that appearance, don't they? I, don't, I hesitate to look around in case my eye lands on the wrong person. But um, some people, you, you, they do stand out in a crowd. You say, oh, gosh, that person must be rather... But of Jesus, we get this, he was not eye-catching. Uh, and there is this element of embarrassment. Uh, perhaps we should say rather stronger than that. He was despised and rejected a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That's verse 3. Some of these words are really quite strong. Uh, The suffering there is being plagued. There's some medical metaphors of sickness and disease and like plague. You know the Egyptian plagues? Uh, he, He was plagued. And he was the sort of person that you would look the other way rather than go towards him. He was like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we reckoned him not, we esteemed him not. That The normal, the default condition is that people look at this servant and they say, you know, what a loser. Don't see anything there of uh, any significance. I suppose if you went back to ancient Jerusalem, there would have been a number of people who were crucified. Even at that, on that particular afternoon when Jesus was crucified, there were three crosses. And I don't particularly think there was anything visually to distinguish one from the other. You'd just not want to know any of them. We esteemed him not. Well, most people esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. We did not reckon him. Third stanza. This one is sort of interpretation. And what is going on here? So the writer of this prophecy brings us in on the secret of what's really happening. What's really happening as this servant has this shocking, appalling experience, activity. Um, He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. And we thought God was getting even with him for some nasty thing he must have done and we didn't want to have anything to do with it. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted and we thought, well, you know, God must have something against him and we just walked by on the other side. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. There's him and us, and he is treated this way because that's how we ought to have been treated. End of verse five, by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, loads of things to comment on there. Um, just to think about this idea of exchange, because it bears thinking about a little bit. It's not quite as simple as you might think. Um, so there's us, that's the us of, of which the text speaks. And it attributes to us iniquity, infirmity, um, transgressions. It says that, that's, that's what we've done. And of course that is over a period of years, isn't it? The, if, if, if the us were thought to be Israel, it would be over a period of centuries. If the us were thought to be the individuals composing that nation, it would be over the course of their lifetime. They accumulate this record of transgression. And the servant, but the servant carries this. And he doesn't carry it now for a lifetime. That doesn't quite work as an exchange like that. He carries it just for a a, a temporary moment. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was a matter of hours, wasn't it? And so many sins, but one sin-bearing action, one suffering action. And the result of this is that the we, the us, no longer carry that sin, but are brought into a place of long-standing peace. It's just worth thinking about because it isn't as though we're sinners, we exchange it with Christ who is righteous, Christ becomes permanently a sinner, we become permanently righteous. It doesn't work like that, does it? Uh, He bears our sin momentarily, deals with it. We become righteous in him, but he isn't always a sinner, is he? He, he, having dealt with our sin, he remains righteous. This thought doesn't need to think about that because we could not, not think that through properly. Let's go on to the fourth stanza, which talks, uh, this is mostly about facts. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Seems to imply the idea that Whereas if we were being badly treated, we would probably complain, get your hands off me, leave me alone, what do you think you're doing? But when he is oppressed and afflicted, he does not open his mouth. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So there's got a, an animal metaphor now. And I'm not sure whether sheep, no, I'm not sure whether sheep usually do go quiet when they're sheared. I suspect they probably don't. I suspect that's an unusual thing. But whether it's usual or unusual, he says, this is how the servant reacts to this. He goes quietly to the slaughter. He goes quietly to the shearing. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The words imply there's some sort of legal process. He is imprisoned, he's arrested, put on trial. That's the idea of that. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then this question, which I can't quite understand, who can speak of his generation? So it's a nice, simple translation to say, who can speak of his descendants? 
and maybe that's what it means. What sort of descendants would a condemned man have? I mean, he's only got a few hours of life left. Who could speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. You remember that Israel, in her, in God promised that if she didn't walk with God, she would be cut off from the land, and the servant is cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, that's that exchange, and his burial is in a grave with the wicked, verse 9, and with the rich in his death, even though he is innocent. And there's a contrast between the burial, which seems to be with the rich and the corrupt, and his own track record of innocence and complete integrity. It's interesting that when Jesus was buried, these verses are quoted. I don't think they're quoted to say that the person who provided the burial ground for Jesus was corrupt, but he was rich. And the uh, New Testament writers flag that bit up. Let's go to the next stanza. Verse 10. Now, I meant to check the translation of this, because I, I did go through it, but I've forgotten. I need to refresh my memory, which I didn't do this morning. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And let me hazard a guess on my memory. I think the word that's used is delight. The Lord delighted to crush him. Uh, I'll check it this afternoon. If I was wrong, I'll have to apologize. But let's just assume that I remembered that correctly. What a text to say the Lord delighted to crush this innocent servant. What possible pleasure could God see in this poor person being crushed? But it says, the Lord thought this was a brilliant plan. The Lord delighted to crush him. Or as, it, as it's translated here, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And then we get more interpretation. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Now, in case you're not familiar with ancient Israel, they had a huge vocabulary of animal sacrifices of all different sorts with various different permutations of what you did. But the basic idea is pretty much the same in each case. That uh, the nation or the person is guilty, the animal is brought and is deemed to be um, innocent. You know, the, the um, manky animals were excluded from this. It had to be a, 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 a good-looking animal. The person would lay their hands or have the priest on their behalf lay their hands on the animal as if to pass contagion onto the animal. Then the animal would either be slaughtered or excluded or something like that. And in ancient Israel, this happened to thousands upon thousands of animals. 
And the insight of scripture is that actually the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And what Isaiah is seeing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a man who is treated like this. He makes his life a guilt offering. This man becomes a sacrificial animal. And this verse has got a sort of U shape to it so that what he goes down into and what he comes up with at the end. And you might say this raises all sorts of ethical questions about whether, whether imposing suffering on anybody else can ever be ethical. I'm not going to deal with those questions here, but I'm just going to say here is the blunt, stark fact, and I suppose you take it or leave it, that this text speaks about a servant who suffered for others. Uh, I should point out that the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Jesus did not do this against his will. Jesus wasn't saying, no, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, stop it. It's one of the remarkable things about Jesus that faced with the opportunity to do so, which of course is what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did struggle. Who wouldn't? Um, Even the Son of God struggled with this. But in the end said, not my will but yours. I will accept this because of the benefits that it will bring to other people. You know, and the fact that we might flag up this is, you know, there are ethical problems with this, not too happy about this. What this is doing is showing up the real radicalness and depth of what Christian truth is. And also flagging up the radical, sacrificial love that Jesus had to be willing to go through this for us. Where do we get to? Um, So verse 10, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, but, and this is surprising, he will see his offspring, and so I'm gonna put the offspring along with the servant. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So he definitely goes down into this appalling darkness, but he doesn't stay there. It doesn't make the darkness any less dark, does it? But he comes through it. He will see the light of life and be satisfied, and the benefits will be huge. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and I pause on the word justify because it's, justify means to make righteous or to declare righteous in some method or some way. So I put righteousnessify. And the question is, what is the way in which somebody can be declared righteous? And one way would be if they actually are righteous. So you look at them and say, what a beautiful life, what a beautiful character, I declare this person righteous. But what's being said here is a way for sinners 
to be declared righteous. For the people whose iniquities he bore, whose transgressions he bore, these people are, are justified, declared righteous. And they're declared righteous by knowing him. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And you, you get the sense of the, the, uh, the, the, the exultancy of the text. What a costly action the servant has taken. Um, and I'll just pause to say, I'm expanding the text. I'm telling what the text says. I'm not making it up. Uh, and, and I can't, in any shape or form, remove this text from the corpus of things that, that has been written in this world. This text exists. And the text claims it's God himself speaking. And he's telling us about this fact of what was done when Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. And I can't take that out of history either. That's there. It is a brute fact. He will bear their iniquities, and I give him a portion, verse 12, among the great. You might look down as a footnote, the many. Actually, the many are a group that are often referred to here, so let's stick with the many. He will give him a portion with the many and divide the spoils with the strong. So this is a sort of glorious outcome. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Intercession, I think, meaning to say that he interfered on their behalf and put himself between the judge and these, intercess uh, these transgressors and said, hold on, I want, to, I want to make a case regarding how you deal with these people, and the case will be based on the fact that I've borne their sins. He made intercession for the transgressors. So those are, the, those are the five stanzas, and I've really done little more than just take us through them and think about them as we've gone through. If John Humphreys is still here, I would say a couple of things to him. What do you make of the accuracy of this prophecy? Because it is remarkably accurate, isn't it? It isn't just that the New Testament writers thought they'd make it fit Jesus. Although I am sure Jesus himself read this and fitted his life into conformity with it. But it is remarkably accurate. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus died in this horrific way. Uh, even sort of verbal... Phrases match up. He was numbered with the transgressors because there were three on crosses, one, two, three, and Jesus was in the middle. The other two were terrorists. He was numbered with the terrorists. And he was buried with the rich. The accuracy of the prophecy, Jesus' trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, it is remarkable. And I don't think it would be a scientific or, a, you know, if in John Humphrey's case, a proper journalistic thing to say, oh, that's all just fixed. I think there's a real issue here um, 
the accuracy of this prophecy. And the second thing, which I think Mr. Humphreys wouldn't like very much, is this diagnosis of the human condition. Because this says, or the writer says, we like sheep had gone astray, we turned everyone to his own way. And I know that's not a politically correct thing to say. In today's world, people would say, we don't go astray. We choose which way we want to go, and that's a good thing, and we're allowed to do that, and who's going to criticize us for it? But the Bible does. The Bible says we actually have got a master, a, uh, someone who's given the blueprint for life, and if we don't go that way, we're actually going astray. We, like sheep, had gone astray and turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a very strong word, iniquity. And Mr. Humphreys would be saying, I don't like that word. I don't want Christians pinning that on me. To which I say, I'm not doing it just to be awkward. I'm doing it to be faithful to what the Bible says. And to be faithful to what Jesus was all about. Because if... There is not a truth that the human condition is one in which we are sinners. Then what a fool Jesus was to die on the cross to take away sin. So I don't think he was a fool, so I want to be faithful to him. I think he knew what he was doing. And the implication is that there is something fundamentally adrift in the human, uh, the human condition. And again, you might or might not like it, but that's, I'm telling what it says. Uh, if, and it's sort of, if you're not happy with that, then I would suggest you go and argue that out with Jesus. Because if people aren't sinners, why on earth did Jesus die? So Joan Indigo, the churchgoer who doesn't quite get the point of this. What's at the heart of Christianity, Joan? Because you might be thinking it's A, Christianity is about being good to your neighbor, having a nice polite culture, a nice group of people that will think about you and pray for you, and maybe doing charitable deeds, and having a supportive friendship group, and hopefully churches bring all those things and provide that. Is that what it's about? You see, that's the, the mistake. You think that's what Christianity is about. So I'm gonna strike out A. And I'm going to say, Joan, had you thought that Christianity is about human religious responses? I mean, maybe you were brought up in a version of Christianity in which the big thing was prayers, pilgrimages, candles. That's why you're so puzzled. You look around, they haven't got a single candle in here. What sort of Christians are they? Um, no statues either. Maybe you thought that was what the heart of Christianity was. Well, I'll say... This text is at the heart of Christianity, and there's nothing of that there at all. So I'm going to go to option C to say the heart of Christianity is this, because this is what the text is saying. It is about one person offering themselves as a sacrifice for sinners and us responding, that's what I need because I'm a sinner and I need what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul would have said that. He said, Christ died for sinners of whom I am the number one. And if you haven't got that, that's why you haven't got Christianity, because that's the heart of it, you see. 
Jane Jacket, you, you've come along here, you've sat very patiently for three quarters of an hour, you came to find some answers. And I think there are some answers here, because one of the biggest questions is, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, it'd be foolish to say he wasn't a historical figure, that's just escapism to say that. He's there, he was there, who was he? Was he someone special? And in the text, it says that many people look at him and not understand him. They'll say he's nothing. They esteem him not. But the, the text says, but you should understand, he is the human being who, let's putting it very crudely, the one human being who was made into an animal sacrifice. And the text will claim that if you look down the length and breadth of history, through all the religions of the world, there is no other place where one man bears the sins of all his people. And more than that, that this one man is more than a man, because when he is highly exalted, he goes to the throne of God. The text doesn't say that, it hints at it. But the New Testament says that about Jesus. That's who he is. He came to die for sinners. He is human and he came from God himself. He is God himself. And then another important question, who am I? And this text answers, I am a sinner distant from God who made me and who calls to me in love and actually I deserve what this servant suffered. Comes a, a real shock, doesn't it? I didn't, I find it hard, you might be thinking, to credit that that is what I deserved. But this is what the text says. This is the, the text's answer to that question. And it goes on to say that though I am loaded and burdened and guilty, I can be unloaded, unburdened, put right with God, sprinkled. All of those things I can be through Jesus Christ. And it also poses this question, who, 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 who believes it? The text is very realistic, doesn't it? It says, who, who's believing that? Who believes our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, here it is. Believe it. And Jim Coggins, the struggling believer. And Jim, when you came in this morning, you were thinking about your mortgage. You were thinking about the appointment with the doctor coming up. You were thinking about how busy you'd been. You were worrying about your family. And let me just say to you, I'm not going to disagree with any of those things, but would you care to think what this text says about yourself? The text says you are sprinkled. Washed clean from all sin. That you are justified. That God is not trying to get at you as if you're a condemned person. But he's taken that all away. He deals with you as an innocent uh, member of his family. You're justified. You're forgiven. You are, Jim, one of the seed 
for whom Jesus died. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Jesus has been, you're like his grandchild. He's been looking forward to seeing you. He cares about you. And do you honestly think, Jim, that if you take on, those, on board all those things, what he's done for you, that having done all that for you, he's really going to neglect you or withhold from you something you really need for your life? New Testament argues it like this. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, the big thing has been sorted. Christ died for your sin. And honestly, for God, finding you the right job, getting you through that doctor's exam, getting you through your exams, that's just easy peasy. Stop worrying about it. God's done the big thing. He's on your side. Why don't you trust him in that? If you want to put it in terms of Isaiah 54, take a look at that um, last, uh, last or so verse, which says, No weapon forged against you shall prevail. And that's the Isaiah response to Isaiah 53. It says, God says, Look, I sent my servant to die for your sins. Do you think that was an easy thing? Do you think that was a trivial thing? I sent my servant to die for your sin, and he did it. And he has successfully risen from the dead. He will prolong his days. He's seated at the right hand of God. That's who he is. That's what he's done for you. And I'm the Lord of the universe, and I'm on your side. And every single thing in this world that that you're fearing is a created thing. I'm in charge of it all. And even if it was a weapon that somebody has made, I'm in charge of the processes that forge iron, that uh, uh, strengthen steel, that make explosives. I'm in charge of all that. And I promise you that no weapon forged against you will prevail. So stop worrying about it. I think we've looked at enough. I've got to, I had some other footnotes, but we'll do, I'll just sit through this and then we'll sing together. 433, Man of Sorrows. <laughs>